Chapter Seventeen of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S. T. Macduff. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter Seventeen, Section Four. Turner ran no serious risk, for the government was most unwilling to send to the scaffold one of the seven who had signed the memorable petition. A warrant was, however, issued for his apprehension, and his friends had little hope that he would escape, for his nose was such as none who had seen it could forget, and it was to little purpose that he put on a flowing wig, and that he suffered his beard to grow. The pursuit was probably not very hot, for after skulking a few weeks in England he succeeded in crossing the Channel and remained some time in France. A warrant was issued against Penn, and he narrowly escaped the messengers. It chanced that on the day on which they were sent in search of him he was attending a remarkable ceremony at some distance from his home. An event had taken place which a historian, whose object is to record the real life of a nation, ought not to pass unnoticed. While London was agitated by the news that a plot had been discovered, George Fox, the founder of the sect of Quakers, died. More than forty years had elapsed since Fox had begun to see visions and to cast out devils. He was then a youth of pure morals and grave deportment, with a perverse temper, with the education of a laboring man, and with an intellect in the most unhappy of all states, that is to say, too much disordered for liberty, and not sufficiently disordered for bedlam. The circumstances in which he was placed were such as could scarcely fail to bring out in the strongest form the constitutional diseases of his mind. At the time when his faculties were ripening, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Independents, Baptists were striving for mastery, and were in every corner of the realm refuting and reviling each other. He wandered from congregation to congregation. He heard priests harangue against Puritans. He heard Puritans harangue against priests, and he in vain applied for spiritual direction and consolation to doctors of both parties. One jolly old clergyman of the Anglican Communion told him to smoke tobacco and sing psalms. Another advised him to go and lose some blood. The young inquirer turned in disgust from these advisers to the dissenters, and found them also blind guides. After some time he came to the conclusion that no human being was competent to instruct him in divine things, and that the truth had been communicated to him by direct inspiration from heaven. He argued that, as the division of languages began at Babel, and as the persecutors of Christ put on the cross an inscription in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, the knowledge of languages, and more especially of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, must be useless to a Christian minister. Indeed, he was so far from knowing many languages that he knew none. Nor can the most corrupt passage in Hebrew be more unintelligible to the unlearned than his English often is to the most acute and attentive reader. One of the precious truths which were divinely revealed to this new apostle was that it was falsehood and adulation to use the second person plural instead of the second person singular. Another was that to talk of the month of March was to worship the bloodthirsty god Mars, and that to talk of Monday was to pay idolatrous homage to the moon. To say good morning or good evening was highly reprehensible, for those phrases evidently imported that God had made bad days and bad nights. A Christian was bound to face death itself rather than touch his hat to the greatest of mankind. When Fox was challenged to produce any scriptural authority for this dogma, he cited the passage in which it is written that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace with their hats on, 
and, if his own narrative may be trusted, the Chief Justice of England was altogether unable to answer this argument except by crying out, "'Take him away, jailer!' Fox insisted much on the not less weighty argument that the Turks never show their bare heads to their superiors, and he asked, with great animation, whether those who bore the noble name of Christians ought not to surpass Turks in virtue. Bowing he strictly prohibited, and indeed seemed to consider it as the effect of satanical influence. For, as he observed, the woman in the gospel, while she had a spirit of infirmity, was bowed together and ceased to bow as soon as divine power had liberated her from the tyranny of the evil one. His expositions of the sacred writings were of a very peculiar kind, passages which had been in the apprehension of all the readers of the gospels during sixteenth centuries figurative he construed literally passages which no human being before him had ever understood in any other than a literal sense he construed figuratively thus from those rhetorical expressions in which the duty of patience under injury is enjoined he deduced the doctrine that self-defense against pirates and assassins is unlawful on the other hand, the plain commands to baptize with water and to partake of bread and wine in commemoration of the redemption of mankind, he pronounced to be allegorical. He long wandered from place to place teaching this strange theology, shaking like an aspen leaf in his paroxysms of fanatical excitement, forcing his way into churches which he nicknamed steeple-houses, interrupting prayers and sermons with clamor and scurrility, and pestering rectors and justices with epistles much resembling burlesques of those sublime oaths in which the Hebrew prophets foretold the calamities of Babylon and Tyre. He soon acquired great notoriety by these feats. His strange face, his strange chant, his immovable hat and his leather breeches were known all over the country, and he boasts that as soon as the rumor was heard, the man in leather breeches is coming, terror seized hypocritical professors and hireling priests made haste to get out of his way. He was repeatedly imprisoned and set in the stocks, sometimes justly, for disturbing the public worship of congregations, and sometimes unjustly, for merely talking nonsense. He soon gathered round him a body of disciples, some of whom went beyond himself in absurdity. He has told us that one of his friends walked naked through Skipton declaring the truth, and that another was divinely moved to go naked during several years to marketplaces and to the houses of gentlemen and clergymen. Fox complains bitterly that these pious acts, prompted by the Holy Spirit, were requited by an untoward generation with hooting, pelting, coach-whipping, and horse-whipping. But though he applauded the zeal of the sufferers, he did not go quite to their lengths. He sometimes, indeed, was impelled to strip himself partially. Thus he pulled off his shoes and walked barefoot through Litchfield, crying, Woe to the bloody city! But it does not appear that he ever thought it his duty to appear before the public without that decent garment from which his popular appellation was derived. If we form our judgment of George Fox simply by looking at his own actions and writings, we shall see no reason for placing him morally or intellectually above Ludowick Muggleton or Joanna Southcote but it would be most unjust to rank the sect which regards him as its founder with the Muggletorians or the Southcotians. It chanced that among the thousands whom his enthusiasm infected were a few persons whose abilities and attainments were of a very different order from his own. Robert Barclay was a man of considerable parts and learning. William Penn, though inferior to Barclay in both natural and acquired abilities, was a gentleman and a scholar. That such men should have become the followers of George Fox ought not to astonish any person who remembers what quick, vigorous, and highly cultivated intellects were in our own times duped by the unknown tongues. The truth is, 
that no powers of mine constitute a security against errors of this description. Touching God and his ways with man, the highest human faculties can discover little more than the meanest. In theology the interval is small indeed between Aristotle and a child, between Archimedes and a naked savage. It is not strange, therefore, that wise men, weary of investigation, tormented by uncertainty, longing to believe something, and yet seeing objections to everything, should submit themselves absolutely to teachers who, with firm and undoubting faith, lay claim to a supernatural commission. Thus we frequently see inquisitive and restless spirits take refuge from their own skepticism in the bosom of a church which pretends to infallibility, and after questioning the existence of a deity, bring themselves to worship a wafer. And thus it was that Fox made some converts to whom he was immeasurably inferior in everything except the energy of his convictions. By these converts his rude doctrines were polished into a form somewhat less shocking to good sense and good taste. No preposition which he laid down was retracted. No indecent or ridiculous act which he had done or approved was condemned. But what was most grossly absurd in his theories and practices was softened down, or at least not obtruded on the public. Whatever could be made to appear specious was set in the fairest light. His gibberish was translated into English. Meanings which he would have been quite unable to comprehend were put on his phrases. And his system, so much improved that he would not have known it again, was defended by numerous citations from pagan philosophers and Christian fathers, whose names he had never heard. Still, however, those who had remodeled his theology continued to profess, and doubtless to feel, profound reverence for him, and his crazy epistles were to the last received and read with respect in Quaker meetings all over the country. His death produced a sensation which was not confined to his own disciples. On the morning of the funeral, a great multitude assembled around the meeting-house in Grace Church Street. Thence the corpse was borne to the burial ground of the sect near Bunhill Fields. Several orators addressed the crowd which filled the cemetery. Penn was conspicuous among those disciples who committed the venerable corpse to the earth. The ceremony had scarcely been finished when he learned that warrants were out against him. He instantly took flight and remained many months concealed from the public eye. A short time after his disappearance, Sidney received from him a strange communication. Penn begged for an interview, but insisted on a promise that he should be suffered to return unmolested to his hiding place. Sidney obtained the royal permission to make an appointment on these terms. Penn came to the rendezvous and spoke at length in his own defense. He declared that he was a faithful subject of King William and Queen Mary, and that if he knew of any design against them, he would discover it. Departing from his yea and nay, he protested, as in the presence of God, that he knew of no plot, and that he did not believe that there was any plot, unless the ambitious projects of the French government might be called plots. Sidney, amazed probably by hearing a person who had such an abhorrence of lies that he would not use the common forms of civility, and such an abhorrence of oaths that he would not kiss the book in a court of justice, tell something very like a lie, and confirm it by something very like an oath. He asked how, if there were really no plot, the letters and minutes which had been found on Ashton were to be explained. This question Penn evaded. If, he said, I could only see the king, I would confess everything to him freely. I would tell him much that it would be important for him to know. It's only in that way that I can be of service to him. A witness for the crown I cannot be, for my conscience will not suffer me to be sworn. He assured Sidney that the most formidable enemies of the government were the discontented Whigs. The Jacobites are not dangerous. There is not a man among them who has a common understanding. 
Some persons who came over from Holland with the king are much more to be dreaded. It does not appear that Penn mentioned any names. He was suffered to depart in safety. No active search was made for him. He lay hid in London during some months and then stole down to the coast of Sussex and made his escape to France. After about three years of wandering and lurking, he, by the mediation of some eminent men who overlooked his faults for the sake of his good qualities, made his peace with the government, and again ventured to resume his ministrations. The return which he made for the leniency with which he had been treated does not much raise his character. Scarcely had he again begun to harangue in public about the unlawfulness of war, when he sent a messenger earnestly exhorting James to make an immediate descent on England with thirty thousand men. Some months passed before the fate of Preston was decided. After several respites, the government, convinced that though he had told much he could tell more, fixed a day for his execution, and ordered the sheriffs to have the machinery of death in readiness. But he was again respited, and after a delay of some weeks, obtained a pardon, which, however, extended only to his life, and left his property subject to all the consequences of his attainder. As soon as he was set at liberty, he gave new cause of offense and suspicion, and was again arrested, examined, and sent to prison. At length he was permitted to retire, pursued by the hisses and curses of both parties, to a lonely manor-house in the north riding of Yorkshire. There, at least, he had not to endure the scornful looks of old associates, who had once thought him a man of dauntless courage and spotless honor, but who now pronounced that he was at best a mean-spirited coward, and hinted their suspicions that he had been, from the beginning, a spy and trepan. He employed the short and sad remains of his life in turning the consolation of Bethius into English. The translation was published after the translator's death. It is remarkable chiefly on account of some very unsuccessful attempts to enrich our versification with new meters, and on account of the allusions with which the preface is filled. Under a thin veil of figurative language, Preston exhibited to the public compassion or contempt his own blighted fame and broken heart. He complained that the tribunal which had sentenced him to death had dealt with him more leniently than his former friends, and that many who had never been tried by temptations like his had very cheaply earned a reputation for courage by sneering at his poltroonery, and by bidding defiance at a distance to horrors which, when brought near, subdue even a constant spirit. The spirit of the Jacobites, which had been quelled for a time by the detection of Preston's plot, was revived by the fall of Mons. The joy of the whole party was boundless. The nonjuring priests ran backwards and forwards between Sam's coffee-house and Westminster Hall, spreading the praises of Louis, and laughing at the miserable issue of the deliberations of the great Congress. In the park the malcontents wore their biggest looks, and talked sedition in their loudest tones. The most conspicuous among those swaggerers was Sir John Fenwick, who had in the late reign been high in favor and in military command and was now an indefatigable agitator and conspirator. In his exultation he forgot the courtesy which man owes to woman. He had more than once made himself conspicuous by his impertinence to the queen. He now ostentatiously put himself in her way when she took her airing, and while all around him uncovered and bowed low, gave her a rude stare and cocked his hat in her face. The affront was not only brutal, but cowardly, for the law had provided no punishment for mere impertinence, however gross and the king was the only gentleman and soldier in the kingdom who could not protect his wife from contumely with his sword. All that the queen could do was to order the park-keepers not to admit Sir John again within the gates. But long after her death, 
A day came when he had reason to wish that he had restrained his insolence. He found, by terrible proof, that of all the Jacobites, the most desperate assassins not excepted, he was the only one for whom William felt an intense personal aversion. A few days after this event, the rage of the malcontents began to flame more fiercely than ever. The detection of the conspiracy of which Preston was the chief had brought on a crisis in ecclesiastical affairs. The non-juring bishops had, during the year which followed their deprivation, continued to reside in the official mansions which had once been their own. Burnett had, at Mary's request, labored to effect a compromise. His direct interference would probably have done more harm than good. He therefore judiciously employed the agency of Rochester, who stood higher in the estimation of the non-jurors than any statesman who was not a non-juror, and of Trevor, who, worthless as he was, had considerable influence with the high church party. Sancroft and his brethren were informed that, if they would consent to perform their spiritual duty, to ordain, to institute, to confirm, and to watch over the faith and morality of the priesthood, a bill should be brought into Parliament to excuse them from taking the oaths. This offer was imprudently liberal, but those to whom it was made could not consistently accept it. For in the ordination service, and indeed in almost every service in the church, William and Mary were designated as king and queen. The only promise that could be obtained from the deprived prelates was that they would live quietly, and even this promise they had not all kept. One of them, at least, had been guilty of treason aggravated by impiety. He had, under the strong fear of being butchered by the populace, declared that he abhorred the thought of calling in the aid of France, and had invoked God to attest the sincerity of this declaration. Yet a short time after he had been detected in plotting to bring a French army into England and he had written to assure the court of St. Germain that he was acting in concert with his brethren, and especially with Sancroft. The Whigs called loudly for severity. Even the Tory councillors of William owned that indulgence had been carried to the extreme point. They made, however, a last attempt to mediate. "'Will you and your brethren,' said Trevor to Lloyd, the nonjuring bishop of Norwich, "'disown all connection with Dr. Turner, and declare that what he has in his letters imputed to you is false?' Lloyd evaded the question. It was now evident that William's forbearance had only emboldened the adversaries whom he had hoped to conciliate. Even Caermarthen, even Nottingham, declared that it was high time to fill the vacant seas. End of section four. Recording by S. T. Macduff.